Welcome to the Men of Magic, an interview podcast that gets into the lives of your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities, with your hosts, Robert Martin and Chris Atwell. And now, the Men of Magic begins. Another episode of the Men of Magic with Rich Hagen, who we did from Great Britain. I am this week joined by a gentleman that you know and has his own fan club. He is one of the youngest members of the Pro Tour to have over 200 lifetime Pro Points. We effectively know him as Paulo. He is currently right now lifetime Pro Points of 276. Say hello. Um, Hi, everyone. When did you start playing Magic, and what got you into Magic? I started when I was about uh, eight or nine. I read about it in a magazine that my friend lent me. And I've always liked this whole like fantasy stuff, like dragons, spells, wizards. So, and I always liked card games. So when I saw that something had cards, it grouped cards and spells together, I thought it would be pretty interesting. So I told my mom about it, and she went after it, found out where I could buy it, and I started playing. When did you start playing competitively? I don't know. I think in the beginning I was so young that even if I wanted to, it was kind of impossible. But I guess my first nationals I went to was in. Uh, let me see. I actually know. It was the year after Kai won Worlds. Well, you were still very young. Then yeah, I was pretty young. Yeah, you've managed to do nationals. And then what what got you to go on the Pro Tour? Well, yeah, I, I only got to go to the Pro Tour when I was from 15 to 16, though. It was 2003. Yes. Uh, it was Worlds in uh, Berlin. And I was qualified because of Latin, Latin American rating, mm-hmm. uh, top 80 qualify. And the store that distributes Magic in Brazil and Portugal and Spain, uh, De Vir, decided they were going to pay the plane ticket for everyone who was qualified. So I got a free plane ticket to, to Germany, and that was the first time I could actually go to the Pro Tour. What was it like your first time at that young of an age to be on the Pro Tour? It was really good. Like, the, the trip was completely different from anything I've ever had before, I had ever had before, because uh, I had never left the country, and I did that without my parents, without anyone I actually knew. It was just me and everyone else who was qualified, and people from Portugal and from Spain. So it was... Really different. It was good, and for the pro itself, it, it also felt pretty good. I actually did well. I topped 64, but it got me thinking that I had a lot to learn because these people are so much better than me. And continued improving, and all suddenly you started top eighting, winning, being consistently performing well. Because at your age again, like I said at the start of this, you have 276 pro points. I'm gonna note some people that are near behind you, like. Hall of Famer Brian Kibler, who has 260. Fellow teammate Luis Scott Vargas, who is a little bit behind you also. You've amassed so many points over such a short period of time in Magic. Is there any additional pressure because you have done so well in the past to where you have to play now? Not really. I, I don't think so. Like, the past is the past, and I, I want to win today because I want to win, not because of what I did in the past. I don't think it affects me in any way. Have you ever felt at a match... When you first started playing, maybe, maybe even at the first Pro Tour, did you ever feel intimidated? Like someone was like, oh, I'm playing against, you know, 
Raphael Levy or Ale Rurel or, you know, Gabriel Nassif. Did you ever feel that kind of, I don't want to say intimidation, but pressure? I don't think so. Um, mainly because I think my first pro tour, I didn't play against anyone I recognized as very good. I actually played against uh, Dirk Bawrowski, but I had no idea who he actually was. And then I played against Darling Castle, which I had heard about, but again, I did not know much about him. And I've never had a chance to play against either Kai or John, which I think would be the most intimidating people uh, back then. But I don't know, I think they're, they're just opponents, like regardless of who they are. They're all people I would rather not play against because they're good or because they play style, but I don't think intimidating is the right word. Okay. I don't think I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. How did you get a part of Channel Fireball team? Well, uh it's actually because of Luis. Uh I talked to him the first time I talked to him was in GP Phoenix, I think, which was two thousand and six, if I'm not if I'm correct. Okay. And we actually they were Q drafting and I had no idea what it was, so I just watched and then we talked for a little bit. And then for Pro Tour Kobe which was some months after that, we actually shared the same flight from the U.S. to Japan. So we just, it was me, him, Zach Hill, and a bunch of other people. So we just queue-drafted the entire flight. So we got <laughs> to know each other better. And then I got to talk to him a lot more. And at some point, we, we like, became better friends. And then uh, I, I, at the time, we moved, he moved to Chain of Fireball. I was still writing for Star City. But it turned out that I kept playing with them. And I was in their group, like the Chain of Fireball group. I just wrote for Star City. So at some point, I just um, moved to Chain of Fireball. It felt like something natural because they're all my friends in the first place. You do articles for them. You do you do videos for them. You talked last week about trying to have fun with an article and getting suggestions with it. How difficult is it to write an article? It depends on the article. When I have something that I want to talk about, it's not very hard. Like when I watch a match and then something, like a concept comes up that I want to talk about, then I don't think it's very hard. And when I'm writing a report, because I have a good memory, I remember all that happened, then it's also not very hard. But when I don't know what to write about, it's very hard. Because, uh, I mean, I know they can't all be winners, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I, I feel really bad when I have to write an article just because I have to write every week, which I do. Like, I write every week, and there's just not enough to write about. And then sometimes it's really desperating because I just don't know what to write about, and it's really hard. You have some very devoted fans. That that love you, including little, uh, little Leia. Is that yeah, <laughs> yes? She is considered your number one fan. Yes, uh, she is. What is it like to have people, fans that are really devoted to you and pay attention to the things that you do on the tour? It's it's pretty cool. It's one of the best things actually. Like for some people, it might seem silly, but I actually like it a lot when people come talk to me and they say they like what I do and that they're fans. They ask me to sign their cars. It makes me feel like I'm doing something that's somewhat important, even if to a small like a lot of people. It's not like I'm recognized in the buzz or anything like that, but in inside this environment, it feels like I'm someone important that I do something important. So it makes me feel pretty good. I'll use the example of Grand Prix Dallas Fort Worth. When you guys get together and you talk in between rounds, none of the conversations I recorded, but I listened to a lot of them that you guys had. <laughs> you guys have a lot of fun, and you kind of poke stuff at each other and talk about different theories. What are some of the best things about being part of this and having the relationships you do with 
almost everybody on the Grand Prix circuit. I think it's pretty awesome because we are all a bunch of very intelligent people. Like, most people who play Magic are very smart, and people who do well are also, like, most of them are really smart. And we all like the same things. Like, we are uh, all the people who are, like, I'm not going to say different at school or anything like that, but we like certain things that not everyone else likes. And suddenly there's a place where you can find a lot of people who like the exact same thing we do and who are also very smart and also care a lot about it. So it's it's something that I would never find as many people who like the same things I do and who think the same way I do if it was not for magic. Doing things differently, you are currently going to school. I am. It shows here that you've studied for physics, but now you're doing international relations. Yes. What got you into international relations? Well, basically, the first thing was that I hated physics. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really bad in one year of it. So I knew I wanted something that did not have to do with numbers. It had to do with people. Mm-hmm. Then I watched some law classes, which I thought were interesting. But the main problem with law was that I don't think I want to live in Brazil forever. And... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I want to move at some point, hopefully soon. And uh, when I do, the law that I learn here is not going to be very useful because law changes from country to country, or like state to state. Absolutely. So what I liked was international law. And everything else that was not international law that was in international relations was more interesting than what was in law. Like, they both have international law, but the rest was more interesting in international relations. So that's basically why I went there. I and tried it. I mean, I, I liked traveling. I like different cultures, different languages. And I actually think it's an interesting subject, even if I, if I don't get to work directly with it. So. You currently speak four languages. Well, not really. Well, you said you know a little French. Yeah, I mean, I know a little French. I can have a conversation in Spanish. I really only speak Portuguese and English, like, fluently. But, yeah, some, some French, some Spanish. Last year, you made a fabulous run at Worlds. And literally, we're on the doorstep of had you won the match against Matteo, you would have had a chance to be player of the year. Yeah. What is it like? If I had, if I had beaten him, I would have been player of the year. Yes, you would have beaten him, you would have been player of the yeah. year. What is it like playing at Worlds to make the top eight of Worlds to be sitting in the match that you know, I win this, I'm player of the year, and I have a chance to win Worlds? What What is that moment like for you? I mean... It it was very important, but at the same time, it was a moment in which I knew it couldn't possibly go wrong. Because even if I lost, it would still be awesome, because I got third at Worlds. Mm-hmm. And if I win, it's going to be even more awesome, but I don't think I was extremely worried about it. Like, I knew there was a lot at stake, but I had gotten a lot already, and it was just a match. It was not different than my Pro Tour Finals. It was a lot easier than my Pro Tour Finals, I think, because I felt in the Pro Tour I had a lot to prove. And for this tournament, I didn't feel like I had a lot to prove to other people. I just, I wanted it. It would have been great if I had gotten it. But going into the tournament, I knew that I had to do very, very well for it to happen. And it was just awesome that I had gotten the chance to actually, like, be in that spot. And if it, if I won, I won. If I didn't, it would still be great. Is winning player of the year something that you would like to do? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was very, very much so. What do you think the most difficult part of winning player of the year is? Um, the mo- I think the most difficult part is that there are a lot of very good players in the world, mm-hmm. and they all want to be player of the year. It's not you, don't, you just don't have to do well, you have to do better than everyone else. And when those people are that good, it's really hard. 
because you know there's a lot of people that are as good as you who are trying as hard and sometimes going to even more tournaments. And sometimes it's just you just can't do it. I mean, you can do something, but sometimes you just have to. It's it's hard. You managed to be the only deck that didn't have Jason at that made the top 16. Yeah. We had a conversation about it, and that wouldn't have been your first choice. What deck would have you have played that weekend if you didn't play Boros? I mean, if I could... It, during that weekend, it was my first choice, but if I could go back, I would have played yes. Blue-Eyed. Okay. I think Blue-Eyed was just a better deck. Cobblade? Yeah. Everybody has an opinion about Jace. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful card. It does so much. and But it's easily defeatable. That's the thing. It can be stopped. My thought is is that the problem isn't with Jace. The problem is with Stoneforge Mystic because of mm-hmm. what it does. Do you think there's a problem card that has been made now that is causing the blue-white, you want to call it menace, to go crazy? Mm, I think Jace is... I think I think there are all important parts, and if you remove any of them, the deck would not be as dominant as it was, like either Jace or Stoneforge. But I think the problem with Chase is that it stops you from attacking anything else that the deck does. Because if it was just Stoneforge, you could just overload in creature removal or artifact removal, and you cannot do that, because if you do that, you just lose to Jace every time. So Jace himself is not the problem, like, by himself, but he stops you from being able to combat everything else that the deck does, I think. So if I had to pick one problematic card, it would be Jace. But if you remove Stoneforge Mystic, the deck also dies. Of all the decks you've played over your lifetime of Magic, if there was one deck that you could just play at every tournament that you would have the most fun with, what would it be? Probably Ferris, which which is almost what happened. I played it every time I could, pretty much. What was so, I know, I had a lot. What was amazing about that deck to you? It was so complicated and so hard to play against as well. And I played it so much that actually I knew so much about it, and it was almost psycho-nature to make weird plays that other people would not even consider. And it was a deck that rewarded a very specific set of skills that I had, which is to be able to go aggressive when you have to be aggressive, to play around something when you have to play around something. And that was something you really had to do with fairies. And it's something that I, I learned to do after playing it so much. Is Cawblade becoming that same kind of deck that fairies was? Or is Cawblade easier to play? Um, I think with... Uh, I don't actually know. I think Cawblade is maybe a little bit harder. Oh, I'm sorry, maybe a little bit easier. The thing with fairies is that some games you just destroy them. With like Bitter Blossom into a fairy, into a Mismaclick, into a Cryptic Command. But the games where you're losing, you really have to try very hard. And they're really tough. With Cobblade, the games that you are winning are as easy as games you win with fairies. It just goes Stoneforge, Mystic, Sword, Counter, two spells, kill you. But the games you are losing are not as hard, I don't think. So I think fairies is probably a little bit harder when you are in a bad position. But yeah, they're like almost the same, I think. That you would one day like to move from Brazil. Yes. Where would you like to move to? I don't know. I think the reason I haven't moved yet is because I have no idea where I want to go. Are there places that have a draw to you? Mm, not any place, any particular place comes to mind. Like I like a lot of places in the U.S., I like a lot of places in Europe, I like Japan, but I can always find a reason not to go to a place. So I think I'm, I'm kind of waiting to find a place that I like that, that has like no drawback. 
that I can think of no reason not to move there. And it's probably not going to happen. Uh, I'll, I'll probably just have to decide on one of the ones that I like. The interview in one of your articles with Kai. Yeah. Very fascinating interview. <laughs> Thank you. Almost like the, here's the guy who's the top of the mountain, and the gentleman that's interviewing him is ascending that mountain to be on top with him. What was that like for you to do that interview? It was very interesting because he, uh, like, as I wrote in an interview, he was the person I wanted to know uh, the most about and the person I actually knew uh, the least about. Because people are just, like, I, I heard people talking about him, but I never really knew what he, he actually thought about all those things people said. And so I saw an opportunity to go ask him myself. It was great. I learned a lot from it. Let's say this is 20 years from now. Okay. Putting the cart before the horse. And you're sitting with 501 pro points. You're in the Hall <laughs> of Fame. You now do magic for semi-competitive because you're doing something else that makes you happy. But you still sure. play competitively, but not often. You know, you, kind of like a lot of times what the veteran players of Magic will do is they'll come back for a tournament now and then. Uh, Pierre Canale did when he qualified sure. for Worlds. Came back for Worlds. And let's say there's a young Paolo. That says, you've done so much in Magic, I'd like to interview you and talk about the history that you've done in Magic. What do you think that's going to be like for you, if you're in that position? I mean, I think it would be very rewarding to know that someone actually wants to know uh, what I thought, what I still think, uh, even after I actually like, stopped playing as competitively as I do now. It would, it would feel pretty good, pretty rewarding. Influx of young talent. In there, uh, the Alex Bertaccini's, the Owen Turnwalls, all these, all this young talent like yourself, very young. It's all coming together, and they're all pushing up through the ranks quickly. Uh, what is it like to see Magic have that kind of older group, like in their thirties, and then the younger group, like yourselves in the twenties? What is it like to have like two generations of Magic together? Honestly, it doesn't feel like two different generations. To me, it all feels like the same group. Like, even if some people in your group are 30 or almost 30, and some people are 20, it, they all feel like the same people to me. It's all the magic group. I would even know how to differentiate. Like, okay. Have you been paying attention to what Jerry Thompson's been doing on the Star City Games Tour? I have. Okay. He has been, week to week, been top-aiding these tournaments like it's nothing. And has, has been innovating the Cawblade deck basically week to week. Now, he hasn't showed up much on the Pro Tour or the GP events because he's been focusing on this. Mm -hmm. If he continues this phenomenal year on the Star City Games Tour, even though he may not qualify for enough Pro Points to win the Magic Pro Player of the Year, could you legitimately say with the way he's playing this year, that he could be the unofficial player of the year? Uh, for me, not really. Because I don't actually know how he's been playing. Uh, I don't know if he's been winning those tournaments because he's been playing very, very well, or just because he's been playing better than the other people who play those tournaments. And I think... I've never actually played one of those tournaments, so I don't know how, how good the people who play in that are. But I think they're not the same as Pro Tours. They're not the same as Grand Prix. And when everyone plays in one environment and you play in a different one, 
not by yourself, but which is not the same level of competition. I think it's actually un- unfair to those people who play like with all the other good people, so to speak. Okay. I don't actually get what I mean. I, I don't want to be like no no no. I understand. No, I understand. or anything like that. No 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 no. I understand. Remember I understand. that I told you there are like a lot of very good players who all want to be player of the year. All those players meet in the Pro Tour. Yes. And Jerry's the one you know, one of those players who plays in those events. So it's not the same. Okay. Maybe those events grow to a point where they become the same. I don't know. It's possible. Okay. But right now, I don't think you could. The Grand Prix season that they've managed to double it. I think it's awesome. Like, I try not to be too excited because I don't know what else is going to come out of it. For example, if they double the number of GPs, but then double the number of points you need for levels, it's actually worse for me. Because I'm not going to go to twice as many GPs as I do now. Uh, I'm going to go to some more. But so far, if everything else remains constant or almost constant, I think it's great. It's great for the game. It's great for me. It's great for everyone. How difficult is it because of the fact you explained when you flew the Dallas that you flew from Brazil to New York to Dallas? Yeah. How difficult is the travel for you? It's pretty annoying at this point, especially when I'm traveling for an entire day and I get to spend two or three days in the place and then I'll the entire day back. But I don't think there is any way out of it. Like Either I, I, I subject myself to that or I don't go, and I'd rather go. You enjoy traveling all over the world, and that's one of the advantages of being on the Pro Tour and doing the GPs is that you're able to go all over the world. What are some of the favorite places you've been to? I think favorite places that I've been to are more linked to experiences that I had than to what the place actually had to offer. Okay. Like, when we went to Kuala Lumpur, for example, we got to go, like, two hours away from the city to a place with a lot of animals, and I got to, like, feed bears, condensed milk. I got to ride elephants in the river. I got to, like, pet the bears. It was really unexpected, and I would never imagine to do anything like that here. So Malaysia was one of the most remarkable experiences. And Geneva was also very important for me because it was the first time I ever saw snow when we went skiing. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't snow here at all. I'm sorry. Just... <laughs> I, 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 laugh, I laugh about this because we spend four months a year in snow up here. So that's why when you said it's the first time you saw snow, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I've never seen it before. It was just a great experience to actually be skiing with like all those people even though I had no idea what I was doing and I got lost and I went to like different mountains than I was supposed to it was just I'm really glad that the pros were able to do that for me so Geneva was also a very remarkable experience is there a place that may have not been on the pro tour yet that you would like to go to there are many places uh, I think Russia is one of the places that I've never been to that is realistic. Because if we go to unrealistic, then I would like to go to like French Polynesia and like Micronesia or whatever, but those are just not realistic places. But I think Russia is actually a possibility at some point. So I would, I know there have been tournaments there, like the Magic 2009 or 10 release that had a bunch of pro players, but I have never had the opportunity to go there myself, so. I liked it. When you're done, what would you like people to think of you when you're done with magic? Um, I don't know many good things, but I think mostly that I was nice. Because I think I'm a genuinely nice guy. And I always try to be. 
And when people notice it, it feels really good. When you were in Dallas and you came in and you were looking for Luis and Luis was stuck on a plane and trying to get there, it was interesting to see that you guys really need to sit down that night before to discuss things. <laughs> yeah, we do. How important is the meeting of the minds like that before a tournament like this? I think it depends on how much you have before you actually go to the tournament. In Dallas, it was very important because I had no idea about anything. So it was like all my preparation would be done in that night. Uh, and I think for Pro Tours, it's also very important, even though it's not one night, it's we meet like a week before the tournament because the format is entirely new. And so we have a lot to discuss, a lot to find out, a lot to play test. And it's better if we just stay focused for an entire week with a bunch of Magic players. But for sort for some tournaments, it's not necessary. For example, I would just fly and play and go back and not worry much. But depending on the tournament, it's very important. Are you going to Providence? I am. With the boom of legacy, do you have an idea of what you might be leaning towards? Have you narrowed it down to a couple of decks you're thinking of? And how much does the new set coming into play affect what you're thinking about playing at Providence? I don't actually have a clue what I'm going to play. I know what I'm not going to play. I'm not going to play any of the decks that I hated before. I still hate all of them, like Merfolks, Goblins, Lands. Like, all those decks, they just don't do it for me. So I'll probably play something with Brainstorm, maybe Counterbalance, First of Will, uh, which is what I've always played in Legacy, even though the, the core never changed and if everything else changed. And as for the new set, uh, I think the new counter spell, I think it's called Mental Misstep or something. Yes. Uh, it's going to be pretty important. It's the most important card for Legacy. But I don't know how it's going to affect it other than making the decks that I don't like already worse. Like, I was not going to play High Tide, I was not going to play Goblins, I was not going to play Lands. And those seem to be the ones that are the most affected by this. But I haven't I haven't played Legacy yet. So I, I haven't played Legacy since the last Legacy GP. So I would I would need to do some catch-up. How do you prepare for that, then? For the Legacy GP? Yeah, because if you well, don't play it, what's your preparation schedule for it? Well, I, I intend to play it. I just haven't played it yet. Okay. But it would mostly be talking to people and... I mean, I'll probably not play much, to tell you the truth, because we have a Pro Tour and another tournament, which are the two weeks after Providence. Yes. And the other tournament is standard. So there are three decks to practice for, and in two of them, the format changes radically with the new set, but in Legacy, it's just a very small percentage that changes. Like, you add 100 cards to a pool of, like, 5,000 cards, instead of adding 100 to a pool of 400. So I think... If I have to give up on any format, it's going to be Legacy, and I just go with what I already know of the format, and then I play test for the other ones. From an article about the cards before they were released, and now that they are officially released, and you talked about the effect of Batterskull. Yes. And how much you really like that card. Batterskull looks really broken, because you can return it after it gets destroyed. It can come back to your hand, and then potentially back out on the field. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Better School is that I don't think it would be as good. I don't think it would be too good if Stoneheart Mystic wasn't there. Yeah. But the thing is that Stoneheart Mystic was already the best card you could possibly have against Control, because you play it against Sword of Fist and Famine. And now it's also the best card you can have against Aggro, because you play it and get Better School, which is like Baneslayer. If you play in turn 3, they 
just can't deal with it. They're just going to die. It has vigilance, it has lifelink. So they have to kill your mystic to have to hope you don't draw it, or they're just dead. And I think that really pushes it, because all the card is the best card you can draw against everything. Is there any other card that you've now looked over, now that you've seen the whole set, that may have been off the radar that you really like? Uh, there was the the two mana one long guy that Pyrexian Rat, I think he's called Immolating Soul Eater, perhaps. His a two mana one one that uh pumps for a Pyrexian Rat. Yes. Plus I think I did not pay him a lot of attention at first, but he seems very threatening. If you were an aggressive deck, and he'd buy like nine or ten by himself, if you ever tap out or don't have a move spell, uh, I think you probably see more play than I thought he would have when I skimmed through this player. So how much do you think standard will change due to the new set? Hard to make oh, it's hard to make a prediction without actually like playing it, but I think it would change considerably. I think it always does. Standard always changes a little bit, because even if your deck specifically doesn't change when everything else does, then you have to adapt, you have to change as well. So maybe like there will be one new deck, there will be a couple of changes in some decks, but that will make the entire format change. What did you think when you first saw Karn? I think it's really interesting. I think he is not overly powerful. Like He's never going to be a Jace. Because the problem with Jace is that if your opponent untaps with him, you know you've lost the game pretty much. But that happens in turn 4. And with Karn, it's going to happen in turn 7, so it is not as bad. But I think I think he's just, I think he's a right balance of a card that... A lot of potential, but it's never going to be superly broken because it costs seven. So I, I like him. I, I could see myself playing Karn at some point, probably in block, maybe in standard too. Yeah, I gotta wonder how block's going to be because the look of this set with block could be very fascinating. It could definitely open up some new archetypes that people have not looked at or have been thinking about. And how difficult is it to play block? I think block is my favorite constructive format. Really? Because, yes, because, for example, in Legacy, you have, like, 5,000 cards, but some of those cards are so much better than everything else that you, if you want to win, your possibilities are, you pretty much narrow it to, like, I don't know, like, 50 cards. For example, like I said, even though there are 5,000 cards, I've always played Brainstorm, Force of Will, Counterbalance, you know, my Legacy decks. Because it's, why did it, they're just better than everything else for me. And in block, you have like 300 cards, but they're all playable. Like you, you, in cards, uh, because the card quality is smaller, like is lower, uh, you get to play cards that you never play anywhere else, and they're good. And I like that a lot because even though the the pool is smaller, it actually looks bigger. So, I think with block, you really have to open yourself to all the possibilities because a card that would never be good in standard or a faster, like more complete format could be very, very good in block. That's interesting. You're the first person that said they like block more than anything else. It's interesting. Really? Yeah. So I, good. I, I've, I've heard people say standard. A lot of people say standard. I've had a couple say sealed just because it's so difficult and it's the unknown. And also I've had pretty good results in like block protors, so maybe this is why I like them. Okay. And But then again, maybe the reason I had good results is because I like them or maybe there's no relation at all, but I don't know, I just like it a lot. Well, then let's go to that. What's your favorite block set that you've played? Probably the one from Charleston. It was Ravnica. Uh, it was actually... I mean, I haven't played many block sets. Invasion was also very good. 
But when I played Invasion, I was not like a pro player yet. But I played in PDQs and stuff. And Invasion block was very good. And Ravnica block was very good. And they were... I think it's interesting that they were both very similar. They were like color-based blocks. And they were both awesome for both constricted and limited. So, like, drafting Ravnica and Invasion was very good. And their block was very good. So, yeah, those two would be my choice. If there was one form of the Pro Tour tournaments that are GPs that you find is your weakest part, which one would that be? Probably limited, I guess. It's because I don't think I'm particularly bad in limited, but I think I'm better than most people in choosing a deck. And that part is really important in Constructed. And my win percentage is, I think, a lot higher in Constructed, in Constructed, in important events. So if they were all Constructed, I would, would probably do better. So I have, I guess I have to say that Limited is my weakest link. A lot of people don't understand what Luis means to Channel Fireball and how much of an important thing he is a part of the whole structure. What is it like to be a friend of Luis, and what has Luis done for you? I mean, what he's done, he, he put me on Chain of Fireball, pretty much. Like, he convinced the owners to hire me, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he he basically intermediates, is that a word? Yes. Okay, he basically intermediates all my relationship with the guy who owns everything. Yeah. So And it's it's pretty good that he's such a good friend, and I can talk to him freely about anything that I don't like, anything that I need, anything that I think could be changed. Because, like, I know he's never going to take it badly because he's my friend. So I think, yeah, just pretty much that. I think it's great that he works the way he works for Channel Fireball, and he's my friend. It really helps my business relationship with Channel Fireball. He puts in a lot of hours when it comes yeah. to magic. TSG. <laughs> We were talking about a time, I think it was when you guys were preparing for Last Worlds, and the group that was preparing was in California. And he was mm-hmm. talking about how Luis would be in the room, on the computer, having multiple chat conversations while trying to keep the rest of the guys organized on the certain people that were doing deck building and the certain ones that were editing the decks to make them work and test and he was trying to keep control of all of it at once. <laughs> yeah. How difficult is it to be in a room full of pros that all have their own thing they're doing and it trying to come together? Mm, I mean, it's not very difficult if you have either if you have someone who coordinates or if you just don't like interfere with each other much. For example, it could be that I I could be playing a matchup. And then someone on the other side of the room could be doing something entirely different. And as long as they're not, like, actively bothering me, it's not bad at all. It's good because they sometimes come watch your games, give opinions, you, like, shout for advice. If you need to know something, like, keep this hand or not. But otherwise, kind of, not keep to yourself, but, like, you, you play your match and what they're doing does not change that. I have noticed you like to mulligan. I do. The difficulty of mulliganing has been written about and talked about. A lot of steps that, as people are trying to ascend the ranks to get onto the Pro Tour, one of the hardest decisions they ever have to make is how and when to mulligan. 
Yeah. I've looked over your shoulder. I did it. I called it over-the-shoulder magic. And on <laughs> a hand I thought that was playable for you, you just went, eh, and shuffle it, took the next one, you looked at it and said, okay, this is much better. How do you know when the mulligan and why? I think it's pretty instinctive, actually. Uh, I think that the most difficult thing about mulligans is that you never know if you're right. Like, bearing absurd scenarios, you could ask ten very good players, and five would say keep, and five would say mulligan. And if you ask either of them why, they'll probably be like, eh, because the hand's not good or because the hand's good. So, it could really go either way. It could be right, be wrong. But, most of the time when I'm mulling, it's just because I think uh, a card, six, a hand with six new cards is going to be better in this matchup than the hand that I have now. And a lot of people don't think like that. They think if the hand is good or not. And that's the wrong way of thinking. Sometimes the hand is not good, but your deck cannot provide you a good hand against that deck. So you're going to mulligan, and it's, the hand is still going to be bad. And sometimes the hand is good, it's not bad, but when you're playing against that particular deck, either the hand becomes bad, or your deck could do much better. Sometimes you need something better to beat them, even if your hand's already good. So I think, yeah, what really changes my like I decide to mulligan or keep on whether I think a new hand is going to give me more chances to win the match. What has been the lowest you've mulliganed to? Uh, I think four. I mean, I might have mulliganed to three at some point, but I lost. I've never mulliganed to four in winning. Okay. So this is why it's, it stands out. But four was the lowest I've mulliganed and won. How, don't... how difficult is it to make the decision when you're sitting at five going, I'm going to four cards? I don't think it's as hard as from six to five. Because when you are on five, you're already kind of defeated. You, you know that it's, it's not going to... Go, you don't have a lot of chances to win. Like, you're not a favorite at this point if you're on five. Mm-hmm. So going to four, you're, you're not a favorite, but you weren't a favorite anyway. But if you're on six and have to go to five, six is very reasonable. And five is worse. So I think the action going from five to four is not negligible, but you don't feel as bad because you thought you were not going to win anyway. <laughs> and from six to five is pretty bad. Now, a lot of people talk on the Pro Tour about what happens on Sunday nights. Uh, when you're not leaving until Monday, mm-hmm. and when the guys go out, and like Endeavor, they went karaoke, and you know they go to different places. Can you give the people that aren't there what it's like on a Sunday night when the group gets together and says, "Okay, we're going to go karaoke, or we're going to go." do this and that. Can you give them an idea of what it's like on that Sunday night to go out with the with the group? It's complete because it's all the people who are already, you know, they're all your friends, but they're in an environment you've never seen them before. Because when you talk to them in the tournaments or like preparing for tournaments, it's kind of like all business. Everyone's so serious. And in those places, not, not so much. Like everyone sings, everyone drinks. It's, but it's still the same people. So it's it's a way to see different side of people, I guess, and it's, it's just enjoyable because again, it's still all your you get to talk a lot and you get a karaoke if you like. But it's pretty cool. Okay, who's your favorite karaoke person on the on the tour that you like seeing karaoke? Uh, I think my favorite karaoke person would be Zeng because he's 
is the one that like organizes karaoke and tells me to go to karaoke. I don't know if he's actually the best singer though. Not that he's bad, but uh, he's, he's not bad. But I don't know who the best singer would be. I think Lisa is pretty good, even though she always sings the same song. Maybe that's why she's good. Which one's that? Uh, the song? Yeah. Uh, I don't know the name. It might be Dream, but I know the Dream going in it. I don't know the name of the song. Okay. Okay. I would have to ask her. You're having fun with all this. You're enjoying your life. You're going to school, playing a game, and having a lot of fun with it. What else do you want to do? What else is there? You talked about moving, but what else is there you'd like to do? Right now, I don't know, but in the future, I would like to have a family. Uh, I would like to, I think, have a better job at some point. Like, because... Even though I love magic, I think there are limits to what you can do with magic. Like, I'm never going to become a millionaire playing magic, for example. And I would like something that, when I get to have a family, that gives me possibility to, like, do better for that family. But I think that's pretty long-term at this point. Right now, I like my lot. question is this. With all the flying you do, isn't that a tremendous expense? Uh, well, kind of. It it is very expensive, but it pays out in the end. Like, for example, um, because I'm level 8, Wizards pays for the flight to Pro Tours. Yes. And then I get to fly to some GPs uh, from the United States, for example, instead of from Brazil, which is a lot cheaper. And then I get a lot of flying miles, because Brazil is far from everything. So if I, if I It's true. If I go to Japan, then because I already have a flying mile status, I get double miles. I actually get a free ticket to the United States. Wow. So, like, Wizards is going to pay my Japan flight, and it's going to give me a free ticket to an next US GP. Just, like, American Airlines flying miles, for example, is going to do that. So and I... Some, go ahead. And sometimes I have to pay myself, but in the end, the pro points... The, the money rarely, uh, rarely evens out. Like, I think I would have to get, like, second or third in a GP to break even. But the pro points are worth so much because they mean more money in the GPs, more money in the pro tours, hotels, plane tickets. That even though I spend a lot, I so far I have gotten my money back. Like I did not lose money to travel to GPs. If there was a final table with you and any player throughout the Magic history that you could play a final match for, this is your last game of Magic, and you said mm-hmm. you were done and you're going to retire and you're going to have a job and go do all that family stuff, if there was one person that you could play against in any format you wanted to play against, and it could be anybody, doesn't matter, Mm -hmm. past, present, who would it be and why? I have no idea, but what what am I playing for? It's your last match. It's the last game of, it's the last competitive game of Magic you're going to play. But is it like a finals of thing, or is it just? We'll say it's. Let's just say it's the finals of worlds, and you can pull anybody out of current magic or magic history to come play you in one. That you've made it both to finals, and you said this is it. I'm done. Who would it be? And well, if it if it was worlds finals, I have to admit I would probably choose the worst player that I know, (laughs) because it would just be more important for me. Like. To, to win the tournament and to be remembered as world champion instead of like losing to someone good in the finals. But if that is not a consideration, 
I guess I would choose I. It's just the biggest series, I think. I kind of assumed that would have been your answer, but I don't ever like to go there unless I absolutely know. What would you What would you play against him, and what format would it be? Uh, it would be constructed. Okay. From I don't know whatever whatever the format was at the time. I think. Okay. I mean, if it, if I'm gonna choose it to make it something like epic, for example, if it's not about winning, yes. then I would not want it to be a format that he's not familiar with. So I guess we have to assume that he would actually prepare for it and. You know, it's kind of given if we meet in the finals, but uh, yeah, I don't know any format that we both like. Was there anyone who kind of took you under their wing and kind of helped you early on? Yes, I mean in the pro tour, I think that person was Vili Viliado. When I started going to those tournaments, he was better than me, and he knew a lot more people than I did, and he was also older, and, like more experienced with like. Basic stuff like being nervous or like networking or playtesting. And I think when we when we teamed for Charleston, it really helped me. Uh, like improving in a lot of areas. When your question was, who's the greatest Brazilian player you know? And <laughs> he didn't say you. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I did. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those moments where when you're reading the article, that you just had to stop and start laughing. <laughs> You've set this up perfectly, and then he just he kind of took it. And he knew exactly where you were going. He goes, no, I'm going to go this way. Yeah, I mean, I asked the question. I wanted to see what he would answer. <laughs> so it was, it, it's pretty much why the question was there in the first place. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool that he answered later. What other games do you play outside of Magic? Uh, I play Bridge, which is a card game, like regular cards. Oh, yeah. I know Bridge quite well. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, you play too? I play. My my friends and I, I apologize for interrupting the interview. My friends and I, <laughs> Sorry. basically, when we got into something, we would play it until we could beat it. And literally with Bridge, it would get to the point where my partner and I would know so well that if I would signal one diamond, that he knew exactly what I had in my hand, and it could go immediately to, to like four spades and call it. <laughs> we would skip all the middle bidding. It's just because yeah. we knew each other so well, and we knew it how we'd play. It, it was fascinating. I, I think bridge is one of the most complicated games to play. But if you have the right partner, bridge can be one of the funnest games to play. Yeah, bridge is very interesting. It's very hard. But I, I don't play it on the same level that I play Magic. Like, I have played the South American Championship for Brazil like Junior Division. Mm-hmm. Because in bridge for like under twenty eight or junior, uh, but never travel to outside of like South America to play it. And maybe at some point I will. And you then, oh, sorry. And I also play like some computer games like Dota, Defense of Games, and and stuff like that, but nothing very seriously. What is the challenge that you get out of bridge? Uh, it's really hard. It's you have to be better than other people with the same cards. I think that's the most challenging aspect. It's not about getting lucky and having the best cards because you know everyone else is going to have those cards. It's about trying to be better than everyone else with those cards. And the other part of the challenge is that you have to, like, you only see your hand and then based on the beating you get to infer what everyone else has 
and you have to think why they would do the things they do, what they could possibly have to do what they're doing. And then you start, it's like building a puzzle. And then you start, you figure out what everyone has. Then you have to figure out how to beat what everyone has. It's really challenging, really hard game. On the scale of games that we have played in our past, it is right up there with one of the most difficult ones we've ever played. There are a lot of other card games that we've played that have been difficult and challenging like that, board games also. It was interesting when you said Bridge, it kind of made me smile because of... <laughs> it's. I thought you knew that I played Bridge because I keep mentioning it in articles. Well, you do. You do, but I read. I have to read every article for for Hardcast, the the podcast oh, okay. we do with TSG. So I have to literally read them all and come up with a sentence answer for what your article is about, and mm-hmm. then be able to talk a little bit about it. So to remember everything that's in every article is virtually <laughs> impossible. Yeah, no, I, I understand. It's just promote whatever they want to promote for about themselves. And if there's a way of getting a hold of them or whatever. So do you want to promote anything about yourself, stuff that's upcoming, where you're going to be, things like that? I mean, I don't think anything is upcoming. But if, I have to, if I'm going to promote something, I guess it'll be my articles. Because I really write them for people to read them. So it is very important to me that people read and give feedback. Like, if you don't like it, tell me why. If you like it, tell me why. And so, again, I write I write for Channel Fireball every week, generally on Thursdays. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can post on Channel Fireball or on Facebook. I'm Paulo Vitor de Moldorosa. Or on Twitter, I'm PVDDR. And that's basically it. Okay. Oh, there's, there's one more thing I wanted to ask before we end it. You've been doing uh, cube drafts recently on... Yeah. Moto. Yeah. But what has that been like? It's pretty good. A, a cube draft is so much fun. There is, like, no pressure at all, and it's just very casually very fun. And actually, I, I recorded a cube video. It has not been up yet. It's going to oh. be up at some point. I don't know if it's the best video ever, because the game took so long. <laughs> There's, like, upheaval... Every game and Vora struggle not to be decked. At some point, I couldn't even like see what I had in play because there were so many permanents. But if people like it, I can do more cube drafts and then record more of those. I think at this point, everyone's kind of tired of like this draft format, so I try doing something different, and hopefully, people are gonna like it. If you do like it, again, let me know. Well, great. That's what I wanted to know because I've seen you interacting with some of the people on Twitter talking about the cube draft and. You reminded me, yeah. so I wanted to get that in there before I go. Again, I appreciate your time. It is... Thank you. I have to figure out what time it is for you. It's like, what, 11.30 your time? And yes. I want to again thank you for your time today. I will see you hopefully not at Providence. Kansas City, maybe? Maybe Kansas City. It all depends on the schedule. I'm not sure how that okay. works out. So, again, I wanted to thank you for your time. And thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. <laughs> Pretty cool. Okay. For the Metamagic, this is Robert Martin with Paulo. Thank you again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>